to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning, everybody. Very excited to be here with you. Um, a warning, we're going to run a little late today. A lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of things. Um, I've got two books here I just want to mention. Tim Chester, Enjoying God. I use this book when I read my Bible daily because this teaches me that I'm not just reading my Bible in order to be obedient and in order to be disciplined. I'm reading it because I want to enjoy the words in front of me. So sometimes I'll pick this book up, I'll keep a bookmark in it, and I might read two paragraphs, and then I'll read the Bible. And it just reminds me and encourages me why I'm in the Word. And this is another book here, not a spiritual book. It's called No More Mondays, all right, by Dan Miller. Fire yourself and other revolutionary ways to discover your true calling at work. If you have questions about whether you enjoy your job or enjoy your work, are you in the right career, take a look at that book. It might inspire you to um, fire yourself. I don't know. I've done it so many times. Okay, um, I'm so thankful for so many things. One is these amazing deacons who we just installed. They, they have been serving their hearts out with joy, with organization, with passion, and it's only right that we place them into that position. So thank you, deacons. I'm also so thankful for our pastor, Stephen, who just this week graduated from seminary. So I think another applause is appropriate. Okay, so uh, let me pray and start our time. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this, this body, that, this gathering, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful place and this beautiful day. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, uh, let me get out of the way and let your word of old through King Solomon come through. Uh, let, let the wisdom of his writing that was inspired by you equip us in this modern day. Open our hearts to love and to be joyful and to remind and remind us, Lord, that the reason we can be joyful is because you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we are finishing our series about thriving in the city. And next week we're starting into the book of James. So I want to talk about the city. I want to talk about joy. I want to talk about leisure, recreation, all of those spiritual things, right? This is going to be interesting. Um, but Sue and I, uh, we're some of the few locals here within almost the entirety of the City on a Hill network. There's so many people who come in through into Boston, find City on a Hill, and make their home here. But Sue and I are actually locals. We're sort of from Boston. Um, well, she, she grew up in Hingham, Massachusetts, and I grew up in Marshfield, Massachusetts, both two towns south of here. And I've always been a little bit more of a country boy, and Sue's always been a little bit more Cosmo, okay? And then we lived in North Attleboro for over 20 years. We raised our kids there, and we moved into Boston when our kids, when we were empty nesters, and we moved into Mission Hill in 2008. But in North Alabama, we found that 
suburban living had its challenges. Getting to know your immediate neighbors was surprisingly hard. It was a lot easier to know them in Mission Hill. Um, it was harder to build relationships with neighbors a few doors down or further down the street um, or in the bordering cul-de-sacs. It seemed that everyone had their little country castle and it was difficult to cross their moat. And it wasn't very diverse where we lived. I mean, there were people of different races and ethnicities, but they seemed to be clustered in, little, in their own areas of town. Well, when we moved to Mission Hill, we felt a clear calling. We wanted to live in a neighborhood where people didn't look like us. And even though our neighborhood on Ellingwood Street had its challenges that most often arose in the early morning with loud noise, car music, disagreements, and law enforcement involvement, we do not regret our decision to live there. City living is different. There's lots of people, businesses, sounds, hospitals, museums, sports venues, universities, parks, trains, planes, automobiles, buses, subways, alarms, and sirens, and a diversity, a beautiful diversity of culture and people. Now, Boston is made up of 23 neighborhoods. We had a missions team in here a couple of weeks ago, and they thought that what we know as neighborhoods were towns, okay? Like, well, this Boston, that's like where the city hall is, and then you're in the town of Jamaica Plain, or you're in the town of Rosendale. But no, these are just neighborhoods inside of Boston. Also, now, many of you know I'm a sailor. I love being on the water. Boston Harbor has 34 islands, and I don't know the names of all of them, and I have not hit any of them with my boat. Boston has a population of about 700,000 people, but when the school is in session and university students are back, it goes up by about 130 to 150,000. There are many celebrities from Boston. I'm going to let you see who they, some of them are. You, you probably recognize both, both of them, most of them. There are many presidents that were, are from Boston. Four presidents were born in Massachusetts, in Norfolk County, which is in red up there. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, John F. Kennedy, and George H.W. Bush. He and I were both born in Milton Hospital. In Norfolk County, eight presidents of the United States... I'm sorry, I skipped that, that comment. Now, also, but in... Eight presidents of the United States have graduated from Harvard, okay? John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Rutherford Hayes, John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all graduated from Harvard. What's unique about Boston? Fenway Park, Boston Marathon. We are, not only do we call ourselves the city of champions, the rest of the world does too, okay? But what's really cool is living here, we have access to the ocean, to the forest, to the mountains, to rivers and lakes and hiking and biking, beaches, snow, sun, all four seasons. I like it here. So let's talk about living in the city. It's about enjoying the city because this is a place where God has placed you. Today, I'm going to have three major points on my message. I'm going to talk about the curated creation I'm going to talk about cultivated chores, that's your work, and chosen children, that's you. Curated creation is the idea that everything we have is from God. Cultivated chores refers to our work and toil, and we are those children. So, I want to talk about 
how we should look at concepts of leisure and recreation, food and drink and fun. Now, when we were part of City on a Hill Brookline, many of you may remember Fletcher Lang, who's now our pastor in Somerville. He was the executive pastor in Brookline. And every every, uh, holiday party we would get together and he would come up with superlatives for each community group. This particular community group was the one that was most likely to memorize scripture together. And this particular community group was the one that was most likely to do local missions. Well, Sue and I led a community group and we were the community group that was most likely to cancel community group and have a party. (laughs) Common view, I want to talk about Sabbath a little bit because it sort of ties into leisure, right? It's a day of rest, right? That's what we think. So common view of Sabbath is what you're resting from work. But I've learned that there's another view of Sabbathing. It's a time to remember God. It's a time to enjoy what he has given us. It's a time to be creative. It's a time to do fun things. Pastor J.D. Greer, who's a pastor at Summit Church in North Carolina, says, the Sabbath is a day to recognize that God didn't create us to accomplish tasks, but to be in love with him. That is our purpose. We weren't created for a job. We weren't created for our ability to produce. We were created first and foremost for God. On the Sabbath, we are supposed to enjoy God and his gifts. It's the one day to be rather than to do. Many see the Sabbath as things you should not do. Now, it says in the, in the fourth commandment, it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It wasn't just to tell us not to work, but a commandment to remember the seventh day and keep it holy or keep it consecrated to God. Now, Jesus and the Pharisees didn't really see the Sabbath the same way. The Pharisees regularly confronted Jesus when he did things on the Sabbath, such as heal the sick or disfigured. His disciples were found picking grain in order to eat on the Sabbath. Jesus was found healing people. In fact, the Pharisees were so set against Jesus that they constantly used the Sabbath as an opportunity to trap him and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. Now, the Mosaic laws were were very specific, and and most of the things they said about the Sabbath were things you should not do. And the Orthodox Jewish people, even today, they're very intentional about the Sabbath. They think that, for example, the idea of not doing work on the Sabbath, they established that if you walked more than a thousand steps on the Sabbath, that was considered work. So many Orthodox Jews will constrain their steps to 999 on the Sabbath. They do their cooking for the Sabbath on the day before the Sabbath. They cook everything the day before, and then they can eat it on the Sabbath. In, In Israel today, many modern elevators have a program and a schedule built into them so that on the Sabbath, when you step into the elevator, the elevator will stop at every floor so that no one has to work at pushing the button. Now, we can commend the Orthodox Jews for their intentionality to keep the Sabbath holy. But it seems that when we watch Jesus and how he dealt with the Sabbath, they may have missed the mark a little bit. Jesus was trying to teach the people that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath. He ate and healed and taught on the Sabbath and everything he did gave life. Still, He reverenced on the Sabbath. 
The day, this was a day to rest and be at peace with the Lord. Jesus did Sabbath right. We have a tendency to do it wrong. You know, sure, if we're honest, we occasionally keep the Sabbath holy. But I'll admit, often my priorities fill that day of rest. And I can't claim that I'm always and primarily focused on God. And while we know that God loves us, we need to admit that that knowledge of his love burns hot and then can cool down. But God's love doesn't grow cold. The book of Hosea is about God's steadfast love for us, even in the light of our unfaithfulness to him. But Hosea tells us that God desi- what God desires of us. In Hosea 6, verses 4 and 6, it says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, but like the dew, it goes away early. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our love for God is like the morning clouds that dissipate in the sun and burn down and the, wind, and the winds blow it away. Instead of just loving God, we think that sacrificing to him or working harder for him is what we, he would want. But he wants our love, not our sacrifice. My message this morning is not actually about keeping the Sabbath. It's about enjoying life in the city. But I refer to the Sabbath because it was, it, it was not about fastidious restrictions about what you should not do on the day of rest, but it was meant to be about taking time to enjoy God, to observe him and the world he's created, as well as enjoy the life you live in that world. And God wants that too. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And further on in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter eight, it says, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. We are to take the time to rest, to eat, to drink, to remember that God wants us to have joy, to enjoy life in the created world. It's time for work and toil, but also time for rest and re- relaxation, to set your minds on beauty, on fun, on eternity, recreation, time away from toil, towards peace, towards joy, meditation, observation. Let's think about the curated creation that God has provided us. Think about the water that God has provided us. They say that man can live without food for a very long time, but not without water. But here's an interesting science fact. Most molecular compounds get more dense when they get cold and freeze, okay? When they change from state, from gas to solid, to gas to liquid to solid. But water, this is very unique. It gets less dense. It's the only compound that does that. And that's why water, when it freezes, floats, okay? Now, think about it for a second. If water didn't float, that would be a bad thing for all of the fish because the water would sink right on top of them. Water is pretty amazing stuff. It nourishes us. It regulates us and our planet. It does insane tricks for us, like no two snowflakes are alike, It floats when it freezes. Did you know that hot water freezes faster than cold water? And no one knows why. 
And also, we can't live without it. Get this. Water is so weird and so amazing. And we live in a world where God created water and he just lets it fall from the sky. That's, that's amazing. I feel gratitude that God designed the world this way. So even on a rainy day, while it may be more difficult to do things that we planned, it's also a good time to think about how God is replenishing us. In Tim Chester's book that I pointed out, Enjoying God, Tim Chester talks about we live in a fathered world. He describes the world as a, as a place where beauty, laughter, tears, and love are all signs of our Father's care. Now, in Luke 12, Jesus teaches about these things. He provides an example of a raven. Now, this raven does not plant crops. He doesn't harvest crops. He doesn't store his own food. Yet, God feeds the raven. He describes wildflowers that do nothing to establish their own finery investments, but that God clothes them in such amazing colors and designs that even King Solomon himself was not dressed as well as the wildflowers. And yet, season after season, our world is covered with so many botanical wonders that could not be counted, and yet they bloom, exploding into delightful blossoms, and then they wither away or are cut down and burned. And each spring, God starts the whole process all over again, as if he's saying, that was great, let's do it again. Tim Chester says, this is disposable art of the highest order. And his, another quote of his, he says, the point is clear. We don't need to worry because the world is full of signs of father's intimate involvement. We live in a fathered world. The very first eight verses of our scripture today in Ecclesiastes talk about time and seasons. And there's a very famous song, and if you're old like me, you remember it, called Turn, Turn, Turn. Yeah, there we go. Um, it's a, it was a song written by Pete Seeger, but in fact, he didn't write many of the lyrics. Solomon did. He only wrote a couple at the end, and it was made famous by the band called The Birds. The song entered the U.S. chart at number 80 on October 23rd in 1965, and then it reached number one on the Billboard charts. And since most of it was ascribed to King Solomon, it has the distinction in the United States of being the number one hit with the oldest lyrics. Lyrics like, there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to keep silent, a time to speak. We've, the scriptures here are very familiar to us, but you notice they're polar opposites in each phrase, right? In each of these couplets, in one through eight, I find myself... I want one part of it, but I don't want the other part. I easily embrace a time to be born, and I'm less eager about the time to die. I do prefer a time to laugh, and a time to weep is not something I'm eager for. Now, I'm a hugger, and I like a time to embrace, but I don't prefer not hugging. So just being honest, I find myself drawn to half of the statement and, and repelled by the other half. So where's the beauty in the things on the list that we would rather not dwell on? It seems to me that Solomon is suggesting that there's a beauty of things running their intended course, completing their cycle, 
beginning and ending and beginning again. And if God is indeed sovereign, then these seasons of time, these repetitions of good and bad, life and death, joy and sorrow, all these things run their course according to his perfect timing. Remember in Genesis, sin came into the world. The world became broken. Now we can rail against injustice as we do, as we did this morning in praying for people in Buffalo and against disease and war and hate, and we should. I think our challenge as Christians is to consider how to deal with the negative ends of these verses in a, ways, in a way that brings glory to God. Here's the good news. God is in all circumstances. He's there when we're born. He's there when we die. He's there at times of war and times of peace. He's there in the laughter and in the tears. The world is broken, but we have good news to share. He is sufficient. He is all we need. Now, the, the toil is hard, but we're commanded to Sabbath and enjoy life. When the world sees Christians doing that, they will want to know more. And this is a way to pick up the, pick up the, the, the point here, surprise the world. Many of you have that book. We're told to bless, to eat, to listen, to learn, and to be sent. The one way to relate to the Father is to see that these things, the good and the bad, are his gifts. The good things are easy to see as gifts, such as love and peace and birth and food. But seeing the bad things as gifts, does that make sense? Can tears and death and war be gifts from God? We need to have faith to even consider this. If you do not have faith, you will find you will constantly be searching for the why in all these things. Why does God let bad things happen? Now, I'm not actually saying that war is God's way of giving us a gift, but I am saying that we live in a broken world and that in this world, we will have trouble. But praise God, Jesus has come to overcome this world and Jesus is the gift. Let's talk about enjoyment. I know we're all down on this. We're all good about, about getting, having a fun time and having a party. But when is joy and fun and food and drink too much? Let's look further into Ecclesiastes in chapter 5. It says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun and the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And further in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if, this is Paul talking, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But in fact, Paul was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic in saying, because you only, to, to try to say, because you only live once, party like never before. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have the good news. And we know that our salvation is assured and our sins are forgiven. And our purpose is to enjoy God, enjoy life and fear God. But let's not immerse ourselves so much in pleasure that we go numb. However, we can accept the freedom to enjoy God and the things he provides. So whenever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
How do I eat and drink, create and rest to the glory of God? When do I choose to eat or drink or choose to refrain from eating or drinking? First Timothy 4 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing to be, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul is teaching that everything God created has some good purpose. Nothing in this world is supposed to be treated as evil in and of itself. Of course, good things can be abused. Alcohol has use, but can be abused in drunkenness. Food is good, but can be abused in gluttony. Sexuality is good, but can be abused if practiced outside of a godly marriage. There is freedom in Christ, and we are not living under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. So how do I do this as a distinct, distinctly Christian way where others see God's glory? As a means to enjoy God, as a means to invite others in, as an avenue for sharing the hope of Jesus. In the movie Chariots of Fire, you may have seen that. It's a story about Olympic runner Eric Lydell. And he said this, I believe God made me for a purpose, to go on mission to China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. To give it up would be to call, hold him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. Now, I'm not an Olympic athlete, but maybe there's a way that my leisure and recreation can honor God. Let's just all try to keep that in, in our minds. Jared Wilson wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. Now, I haven't read it, but Pastor Stephen has, and he shared with me a concept about enjoying God's blessings. Imagine you're a parent, and you love, you love your children so much that you build them a basketball court in the backyard. Your children love to play basketball, so it's fun for them. One response from your kids would be to come to you and say, Mom and Dad, thank you for building this basketball court. I really love it. Well, that's nice. That's, that's good. But Jared Wilson says, Mom and Dad are most pleased as they sit back on the back deck and watch the kids playing basketball. All right, I'm going to talk about work here. Let's try to think about them as the cultivated chores that God has prepared us to do. In verse 9, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And Solomon's posing a question here in chapter 3, but he actually begins the entire book of Ecclesiastes with it. In chapter in, in in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's talking a lot about work, and he's talking a lot about how the things that he describes in Ecclesiastes are just vanity. Here in Boston and in many modern cities, we are a magnet for workaholics, or just for people who are drawn here for career, education, advancement. I mean, that's good. And God has given us minds and creativity to use when we toil. Who among us has not spent time praying to God that he reveal to us our purpose, to make clear our path in the small decisions of life and in the big ones, such as school or career? 
And when the author says, what gain has the work from his toil? What gain has the worker from his toil? He's stating that even though man searches for meaning and purpose in life, it is not to be found in toil and in work. In fact, in the garden in Genesis, God gave Adam work to do, and it was joyful. But then sin entered the garden, and work became backbreaking, tiresome. So if, if we're not to sort out meaning and purpose of life by our own efforts, How should we satisfy that? Solomon answers us in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, he has put eternity in our hearts. Because we're time-based, we remember the past, we live in the present, and we consider the future. Eternity is the never-ending future of the future. God has placed the consideration, he's put that in our minds for us to think about eternity. We dream about what it would be like. We dream about who who we will see there. God has given us this eternal perspective, and this allows us to look beyond the daily steps of today, beyond the routine, towards the time when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. We have eternity in our hearts and long to know what it will be like, but the verse tells us yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we don't know. We cannot know. Man is created in God's image, and part of that image is to yearn to know our significance and purpose. And while we have careers and work, it's not our purpose. Our purpose is to enjoy and fear God. So be joyful in work, in toil, in responsibility. Read this book, No More Mondays. See if it it rings a bell for you. What about chosen children? Okay, here's my final point. It's coming. Why should you enjoy yourself? Why should you enjoy recreation, fun, idleness, a good book, food and drink? The reason is this. You are his chosen children. You have been adopted. And why are you adopted? Because God loves you. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Pastor and theologian J.I. Packer talks about adoption. He says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with the God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Do we sometimes think that God is just tolerating us? That his only joy comes when his son stands before him and stands between God and us, pleading to the father on our behalf, asking him to see us as righteous, we know this is the case. We know that he stands there and and that he pleads on our behalf. But do we think that God is displeased, disappointed, and disgusted by us and the choices we make? I need to tell you that is not the case. In the beginning, before he created the world, God started with love. 
God chose you before the creation of the world. It all started with his love for you. His love for you didn't come into place when you bowed your knee and called Jesus Lord. It was already there. It has always been there. His love is unconditional. There's nothing you can do to cause him to love, stop loving you. And there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you more. It's not up to you and your work, your sacrifice, your beliefs, your mistakes, or your sins. He just loves you. Now, how much does he love you? How great is his love? Scripture tells us in 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. We are God's children. And in Romans 8, it says, nothing, not death, life, not, nor circumstances, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen and thank you. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. God loves you, wants you to be happy. Joy in him, joy in Jesus. He wants you to take breaks from work, to slow down, to see the beauty of the world he has created, to exercise your gifts he has blessed you with, to share life with others you need to hear the, who need to hear the good news of the gospel. Sure, that can be done during work, but also on a hike, at a park, on a boat, helping a neighbor. So surprise the world. The world may be surprised by seeing you laugh, being silly, exercising, enjoying creation, walking in the love of God for your good and his glory. The book, Surprise the World, that we're going through in our community groups says this about leisure. Our leisure, even our play, is a matter of serious concern. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So it matters that you enjoy and you recreate and you have leisure. It matters how you do it, that it is glorifying God. And just to finish up, how much does God love you? In John 3, 16, which is all very familiar to us, it tells us, but I'm going to go a little further through into 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. If you've not made the decision to trust in Jesus as Lord, if you want to know what that means or what it means to enjoy and fear God at the same time, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or maybe seek out Pastor Stephen or his wife, Amy. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Let's pray. Let's pray.